My name's Amanda Compton. Along with Lolita Bus, I host Mudrooms, a local monthly event where real people tell real stories, live on stage. Mudrooms are not just where mucky boots are ganked off, rain-drenched and snow-covered jackets hung up to dry, and skis, paddles, and various recreational paraphernalia tossed into the corner. A mudroom also serves as a glimpse of what life might be like inside. Through these stories, we offer a peek inside the lives of our residents and our vibrant community. This recording was made on March 14, 2012 at McFeeders Hall in Juneau, Alaska. The theme for the evening was Cabin Fever. Katie Spielberger grew up on the south side of Chicago. She moved to Juneau on a whim after college to work on a whale watching boat for the summer. And like so many others before her, fell in love with the place, scrapped her other life plans and decided to stay. According to voter registration records, she is the only Spielberger in the state of Alaska. She is a reformed liveaboard boat owner who will never again take indoor plumbing for granted. She has never met an activity she doesn't like, and she always errs on the side of interesting. Katie Spielberger. Hi, everyone. Happy Pi Day. Um, so during my first winter in June, about five or six years ago, um, as it was just beginning, a friend of mine said to me, I bet you won't make it through December. Of course I set out to prove her wrong. And uh, my strategy for doing so was to try basically any new activity that came my way. If someone suggested something, I'd say, yes, let's do it. Keep things interesting. And especially if someone said, hey, this is a great activity to combat, oh, seasonal affective disorder, cabin fever, the winter blues, I would definitely agree to it. Um, so when a coworker of mine at the time, um, who was incidentally maybe a 60-year-old man, suggested one day that we go tanning, I said, well, that sounds like a great idea. Let's go. i never done this before. It was nothing I um, ever thought I would end up doing, but I did. And I actually got hooked on it. Um, and I can't see you guys out there, so I'm not even going to ask who else has been tanning before, which was my audience participation moment. But um, if you're anything like me, you do not want to like raise your hand and admit that you've done it. If I were in the audience, I would not admit it. But here up on stage, I will. Um, anyway, so tanning became kind of a Juno winter beat cabin fever thing for me. But it was never something I did outside of Juno um, until last summer um, of all seasons in California of all places. And I was in Southern California last June for um, my younger brother's wedding. And what you might not know is that in Southern California um, in early summer, they have something that's kind of akin to cabin fever. They call it May gray and June gloom. Um, and it's when it's you know somewhat overcast and like 60 or 70 degrees. Um, so really difficult weather conditions. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I was, uh, so I was in Southern California for my brother's wedding, um, and he was marrying a woman from Orange County. And I didn't really know her that well, or her, her family or friends, but I was spending a week with them um, doing, doing wedding stuff, which was a lot of crafts and a lot of cosmetic activities. And everything, was, and everything was imbued with this heightened sense of importance, because there's a wedding coming up. It's the most important day of my brother's and my future sister-in-law's life. So everything we do is very important, um, whether it's cutting 150 little leaves out of green cardstock or putting 20 green jelly beans into each of 150 little bags or getting a manicure or makeup done. Like, this is imperative that we get this done right now. Um, so two days before the wedding, one of the other bridesmaids says, well, she's, she's too pale for the wedding. She needs to go spray tanning. And I say, well, yes, I will go with you. This is very important. Let's go. Let's do this. 
Um, so we go to this tanning salon in a strip mall in, um, in Orange County, and for the first time all week, I feel right at home because it's just like a tanning salon in Juneau. Um, <laughs> and we go in, and she's kind of nervous because she's a normal person who doesn't go tanning for an interesting hobby in the wintertime. Um, so I, I try and put her at ease by asking the woman there what we're getting into. And I'm like, so what is this spray tanning thing? Is it like a dye? And the woman says, well, no, it's not a dye. We never say it's a dye. That scares people. We tell people it has dye-like properties. <laughs> so very reassured, we go in and we get something with dye-like properties sprayed on us. Um, and after, afterwards, she, um, this woman gives us um, a warning, which is that we have to be very careful um, not to um, shower or bathe or get any water on us for about 10 to 12 hours afterwards because it might like smear the spray tan. So we say, okay, and we go on, and that means we have to forego the, the foot bath at the pedicure afterwards, so it's really tough, but we're remaining strong and like trying to avoid water. Um, we go back to the, um, to the house to get ready for the rehearsal and the rehearsal dinner, um, and I'm getting changed, and all of a sudden, I hear a scream from the bathroom, and I run out, and it's the other bridesmaid, Jen, and she is just screaming and swearing, and this is a girl who's been calm all week, and apparently, she'd been doing something with her hair, and she'd gotten it wet, and a few drops of water had dripped from her hair onto the front of her chest, and it totally smeared her spray tan. It looked awful. It was all splotchy. It was weird, and she was, she was freaking out. And of course, we got all the makeup we could and tried to cover it up to no avail. And you know, we kind of had to go, so I lent her this silk shawl of mine and covered her up. And we got into the car and um, started driving to the to the rehearsal. Um, and this being LA, you know, while we're in the car, we have to um, we have to keep putting on makeup and, uh, and doing whatever. Um, and 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 one of the cosmetic activities that's going on is people are using these uh, teeth whitening strips, which again I've never used before. So I say, well, hey, can I try one of them? And so the bride gives me this teeth whitening strip. So I put it on my, my teeth, um, and um, you leave it on for like 10 minutes. Um, and then when you take it off, um, it leaves all this gunky residue in your mouth. So I reach for a bottle of water to rinse it out, and I roll down my window to spit it out the window. Now the problem is, we're driving 70 miles an hour down the LA freeway. So as soon as I spit it out the window, it's immediately blown back into the window and onto my chest, streaking my spray tan. Now, this is not the kind of warning they give you at the spray tan place. They don't say, they say don't shower afterwards. They don't say don't use teeth whitening strips in the car when you're going 70 miles an hour on the freeway. So I start screaming and I reach for something to like get the water off and the only thing available is my silk shawl. So I mess that up too, get something with dialect properties all over it. Um, so we get to the church for the rehearsal. The other bridesmaid and I are basically in tears from looking awful and the bride and her sister are in tears from laughter. And we have this great story to share with everyone. And we walk into the church um, it's a Catholic church, and, and, and the other bridesmaid, um, a good Catholic that she is, um, uh, reaches for the, the bowl of holy water. But then, then she stops herself, and she looks at me and says, oh my goodness, we cannot bless ourselves. <laughs> so we don't. That's another warning they don't give you at the spray tan place. Um, of course, everything turns out fine. The next day, we shower, and our skin returns to you know basically a, a normal, even tone, and the the wedding goes off well. And and we have great stories to share with with new segments of the family. This kind of thing really, I don't know, brings you together with uh, with with new sister-in-laws and and whatnot. And uh, the day after the wedding, I. 
Um, I'm running some errand with my sister-in-law's sister, who's also become like a new little sister to me in the course of the week's adventures. Um, and at one point, for some reason, um, she asks me for life advice. God knows why. Um, uh, so I give her the only life advice I, I have to give, basically. I say, um, well, always err on the side of interesting. So there's a pause, she thinks about it. I think she's thinking about spray tanning and teeth whitening strips. Um, and she looks back at me and she says, doesn't that get you into trouble sometimes? <laughs> and I say, well, yes, of, of course it does. But it's still the best life advice I have to give and it's still the best advice I'd have for getting through cabin fever. That and occasionally going tanning. Thank you. <laughs> Our next speaker is Brian DeLay. Brian DeLay was born in upstate New York in the city of Saratoga Springs, a city with a rich history in war, gambling, and booze. At 14, he quit, being, he quit betting the ponies and began plotting his escape from Urbania. He left home at 18, seeking opportunity, adventure, and solitude in the wilds of Alaska. Brian has made his home and the Panhandle since moving here in 1999, and since then, to his great dismay, has found a niche in the community, the love of a woman, and a piece of land to call his own. Wow. <laughs> that spotlight's something else. So cabin fever, most people experience it, and uh, for me, I'd define it as a sense of feeling trapped or isolated, hopeless. It's where we reach the bottom. But hopefully we, we climb out. And in the face of adversity, we discover the greatest things about ourselves. Traits and skills, virtues that create who we are as people. It's become an annual thing for my wife and I, fishing together on a 32-foot boat for four to five weeks at a time. But tonight, I thought I'd talk about my longest stint. It was roughly 18 years. Encompassed most of my childhood. I grew up in a large family of eight kids. Now, I know what you population control folks are thinking, <laughs> scorning my parents in the back of your mind. But people ask me, what was it like? And what they want to hear is that it was great, that my mom never did the dishes, and that the chores were always done. But what it was really like, I, I could describe as growing up in a zoo. My mother, being the zookeeper, she did a pretty good job keeping us from eating each other, keeping our cages clean, and keeping us fed. <laughs> My father, the lion tamer, who wasn't that good of a lion tamer, which, which is actually a pretty important role in, in the function of a functioning zoo. But I learned a lot, and I gained a lot from growing up in a zoo. And I developed virtues and skills. The first skill I learned was to hold it. <laughs> and a house with three bathrooms and eight kids, if everybody was home, someone was in the shower, you could be there for a while. 
And I was that guy on the airplane sitting next to the window for six hours while I had to go, but I didn't bother the people next to me. I sat there and I took it because I had a strong bladder. <laughs> humility. I learned humility growing up in a zoo. My sisters were tomboys, my two older sisters, and I would occasionally borrow their clothes. <laughs> and one sister in particular would occasionally confront me in the halls, junior high, and forcibly remove my shirt from me, which is a very humbling experience to be <laughs> undressed by your sister in the halls of junior high. Another skill I learned was keeping my mouth shut, which my father would absolutely disagree with. So one day I was walking up the stairs with a friend. I was in first grade. And we walked past my sister's class, sixth grade. And I called my sister a slug bucket. <laughs> and her sixth grade teacher heard me call her a slug bucket. And she was not down with it. So she called me up to her class, straight out of the first grade up to the third floor. It's where all the big kids are, you know, first grader, sixth grader. Sixth graders are pretty big. So she made me apologize to my sister in front of her whole class and kissed my sister <laughs> in front of her whole class. It was a pretty humbling experience. So from a young age, I was get itching to get out. And when I could, I wasn't going to stop. And I was going to keep going. And I was going to go to the farthest corner of the continent, furthest from my home in New York. But with years to go, how would I survive? <laughs> Two 26-inch wheels. That's right, a bicycle. <laughs> so Sunday rolled, rolled around, and I would ride my bicycle across town. I was going to the snobby church that my parents wouldn't go to. And that snobby church just happened to be two blocks away from my girlfriend's house where her parents were attending the snobby church. So alas, graduation came, and I managed to stay out of jail. And my great escape was imminent. And to my parents' great disbelief as I packed my bags and made it clear that I was actually leaving and making a break for it. I left and they let me go. And looking back, only occasionally and when I need to, I think about growing up in that zoo and I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Our next speaker is Beth Weigel. Beth grew up on a small rural farm in, you know, I haven't seen her tonight. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Beth grew up on a small rural farm in Pennsylvania and eventually struck out for Colorado, where she earned a PhD in human communication from the University of Denver. 
Maybe she'll tell us what that means, human communication. And um, I'm not making fun of the fact that she has a PhD. I'm just curious about human communication. Beth moved to Juneau over a decade ago. Her experience teaching skiing and working for Gastineau Guiding piqued her interest in the significance of the outdoor classroom and nature interpretation. Beth has been the executive director of Discovery Southeast for the past four and a half years. Two of the areas she is focusing on are ocean literacy and the health benefits of time spent in nature. Beth also teaches part-time at UAS and enjoys spending the winter months skiing or teaching at Eaglecrest. Her other hobbies include music, theater, and devising ways to reuse everything. Beth Weigel. Okay, so Amanda, that basically means that uh, when you have a PhD in communication, you agree to things like this, right? So, <laughs> I had my worst encounter with cabin fever in the winter of 2005-2006. And some of you might remember this winter because we were all waiting for the snow to arrive, right? So, the beginning, after the beginning of the year, the new year, the uh, headline in the Juno Empire reads, and we will get snow in 2006, probably. Eaglecrest doesn't open till the end of, July, of January, and everybody is really just feeling quite feverish at this point. I personally am feeling really confined, almost crazy to the point I want to pull out my hair, and uh, just totally tortured by this. Actually, come to think of it, it, it was a little less like a fever, and it, it was really more like cancer. And I was diagnosed with, with cancer. I, I was diagnosed actually in the fall of 2005 with large B-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphoma of the left sinus passage. So that's a translation of, I had some tumors in my head, and I was going to have to undergo uh, both chemotherapy and radiation, and, and yes, I was going to lose all my hair, right? <laughs> so yes, I, I can tell. I can hear at this point, perhaps, that um, you're feeling a little worried about me, maybe feeling a little sorry for me, and thinking, oh gosh, a cancer story. Um, but I'm going to break the number one rule in storytelling and give away the ending. I survive. <laughs> so, you know, before the whole confinement period sets in and I, I had to start treatment in, in mid-January, I decided it was probably a good idea since there's really no snow anyway and I can't really enjoy that little period of skiing before, before chemotherapy, I'd head back east to my parents' house and bank some time over the holidays with friends and family and, and uh, just try to, you know, relax before I had to start chemotherapy. So I go back east to the, the farm, farmland there in Pennsylvania. We call it sometimes Pennsylvania there in the middle of Pennsylvania. <laughs> and, um, you know, I land and, and I realize that there's over two feet of fresh new snow. And I'm, I'm thoroughly excited at this point. I'm like, this is great. I can be outside in the snow a little bit. And so, you know, the next day after I've, I've gotten there and I head out and go for a walk and, and overnight it had, had gotten a little crust on, on the snow. And so I'm like trying to like take a hike through the fields and I'm like post-holing every single step of the way. And I'm like, why don't I have skis? This is ridiculous. This is stupid. Why didn't I bring my skis? 
and uh, feeling a little downtrodden about that. But then I remember that uh, we had played with these old wooden skis when I was a kid. And that um, I'm thinking, you know, my mom probably kept them because she keeps everything. So I race off to the milk house in our farm land area there. And, and of course, they're still there. And they're more wonderful than I could have remembered. Um, their beautiful shape and the little leather strap, you know, that you, that's the binding, still, still there and, and, and usable. And so I grab them and I run outside. I find a little you know, sloping area in the yard, and I put them on my feet, and I start to slide, and I'm like, I have no idea how to stop, I have no idea how to turn, I, I have no idea how to do anything, and I'm, you know, on my ass before you know it, and uh, the skis are sliding on down the driveway, and away they go, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm not going to give up, I'm going to figure this out. So I, you know, create myself a little challenge in the backyard. I create this nice big figure eight where I can, you know, slow myself down with the terrain and, you know, nice big rounded curves. And I go to the thrift store, get myself some 50-cent poles. You know, I pull out some paraffin that my mom uses to put up the jams and jellies, and I rub it on the bottom of the skis. And, you know, before long, I'm, I'm, I'm in business, and I'm off, and I'm all over the 100-plus acres of our farm enjoying this little bit of nature therapy that I can get in before I have to head back to Juno and start chemotherapy. So that was a really great part of before treatment. But of course the inevitable happens. I head back to Juno and I have to start chemotherapy. And of course, you know, I know I'm gonna lose my hair. And so I figure, you know, you know, you try to have as much fun as you can with it. And uh, you know, you bring in your friends, you incorporate some fun around it. And uh, so the first thing we did, you know, was, was we actually had fun kind of pulling it out. Because, you know, you really can just, just pull big, huge chunks of your hair out. And it's kind of entertaining um, <laughs> when you don't have anything else to do on a night. Uh, the next thing was that, you know, we just kind of cut my hair off blunt. And, and then we, we dyed it this really outrageous color because that was just going to be fun to have outrageous colored hair for a little while. So... So yeah, so then I went around town with some outrageously colored hair. And uh, you know, I also acquired some really fun hats and scarves and some other wigs as well. And um, you know, it was, it was actually a time when you know, I could develop some characters. You know, I was evolving and, and everything. And so you know, I had my you know, punk defiant girl you know, with my outrageously colored hair. I, I had this really great hat that my friend made me that I could put on. And, you know, then I would be all chilled out and be like Rastafarian girl, you know, hanging out around town. And, you know, I got my grape hat. So that was really fun. But eventually, you know, it all comes off and, and you're faced with sort of the, the idea that your head just has to stay warm. So you find yourself a nice warm little thing that you can put on and, you know, you got yourself your scarf and... I kind of started thinking, well, gosh, maybe I, maybe I look kind of elegant, you know, like, like maybe I'm a movie star. And uh, people, people are going to be surprised and, you know, thinking, who's that, who's that movie star around town, you know, put the sunglasses on. <laughs> you know, you get, you get your scarf on. And, you know, you think, yeah, people are going to think I'm somebody famous, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's what they're going to think. I think probably in reality they just thought I looked like some sort of bug. <laughs> I don't know. But it was fun, and uh, you know, it was it was a way to get through chemotherapy. And uh, the last part of the treatment was uh, going up to Anchorage and and and, and dealing with um, radiation. And for me, you know, radiation was really the most torturous part of that winter. Um, it was torturous for a variety of reasons. 
Um, first of all, because you know I had to go to Anchorage and live in an efficiency apartment in a bad part of town. Um, I had to uh, go to treatment every single day, and there was a lot of waiting for that, and there was really only five minutes worth of treatment, but you spent you know an hour or more there. And um, yeah, there was there was you know some sickness involved, and you know non eating and things like that. So it was really torturous, but. And, and you know, I don't want to scare anybody, but the most torturous part about the treatment was, and I, I just want to prepare you, okay, you prepared? Was the mask. This is the mask. Ooh, yes. And uh, the mask was, the, uh, was created in order to um, make sure that I could be staying on the table when I was having radiation. So on it was, you know, I'm kind of like Jason, right? <laughs> But it allowed me to have some fun with, with torturing the, the poor radiation techs. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the thing that I realized was, because I had friends come and help me, is that, you know, if you, if you can just uh, go outside, have a little bit of fun, and have your friends around you, that you can get through cabin fever and probably even cancer. Thank you. Um, our next speaker is Pit, Pete Griffin. Pete Griffin is a youper, a native of Michigan's Upper Peninsula, and he makes an annual pilgrimage to his cabin there. He retired in 2010 after a 36-year career with the U.S. Forest Service. Retirement has given him time to develop and tell stories of his experiences in the forest as well as stories about growing up. In the summer of 2011, he told natural history stories on board the Disney Wonder as it sailed the Inside Passage. He recently told his stories in concert in Los Angeles at the National Storytelling Network Conference. Pete is currently the Alaska State Liaison for that organization. Yeah. Pete Griffin. Oh, man. Well, where I grew up in, in, uh, in, in Upper Michigan, having a cabin was a, was a status symbol. And, unless you happen to be a family that lived in one of those one-room cabins out in the woods. But I grew up, moved away from home, and every once in a while I'd come back and visit. And, and I, I told my dad once, gosh, I got this property. I think I'm going to build a cabin. And he said, well, I got a cabin for you. He said, used it for storage. I don't need it anymore. 14 by 16, that's perfect. But he said, I got to tell you, it, it, it belonged to old Bill Murphy. Well, old Bill Murphy was a, a character around town as I grew up. He was a constant. He was a kind of a weird guy living in this this cabin without any running water or electricity. He'd wander around town. He kept a big wad of cash in his in his wallet or his, his pocket. When he'd buy something, he'd peel past the 50s and the 20s and the 10s and pull out a couple of dollar bills to pay for his flour or his, his fuel oil for his, for his stove. Well, old Bill was found dead in a snowbank one Saturday morning. He had been beaten and robbed. He didn't have a family, and his stuff was stole to, sold at, a, at an estate sale. Dad bought the cabin, moved it up to his farm, and I said, sure, I'll take the cabin. So I moved it over to my property, and, and, and the cabin was really in, in tough shape. It really stunk. I mean, the interior was covered with kind of a greasy soot, and, and old Bill Murphy had collected raw deer hides for some reason stored them up in the rafters up in the rafters well 
man, the hair all over. We got rid of the, 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 the deer hides. But I was going to work on this cabin oh, on, on weekends. So I, I pulled up the, the first weekend on a Friday night and, and, and put up my tent because I wasn't sleeping in that cabin until it was thoroughly disinfected. And I went off. I visited the neighbors and, and let them know there was going to be activity around the cabin. And they complained about the deer in their garden and the bear that was getting into their into their outbuildings and garbage. And, and then I went and checked in with my parents and found my friends. And about midnight, I headed back to the cabin to get a good night's sleep and start on, on uh, working on the cabin the next day. Well, well, one of those Midwest thunderstorms brewed up. You know, it, you know, big billowing thunderheads, and it started hailing and raining and the wind and and the rain was coming down in buckets. It was raining cats and dogs. It was raining like a cow pissing on a flat rock. <laughs> and I was weaving down this gravel road, and the trees overarching the road were waving back and forth, and there were limbs coming down, and I was steering the truck around, and I pulled into the, the two-track road that led to the cabin, and, and there in the headlights, I could just barely make out the cabin, and, and there was no tent. And I got out and I looked and a limb had fallen on the tent and squashed it and was laying in a puddle of water. And I took my sleeping bag and I threw it in the cabin because, man, I wasn't going to spend the night in the tent. So I'm laying there and this storm is moving in and I can see the lightning flashes and I, I'm counting, you know, counting the seconds and hear the rumble of oh, the, the storm. That was only a mile away and, and that lightning strike was only a half a mile away. And, and then, and then it was only a quarter mile away, and it would light up the interior of the cabin like a flash bulb, just bam, an intense light, as intense as that light right there. <laughs> I couldn't see anything, could see no color, and then the light would go away, and, 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 and I'd be in complete dark except for this image that was just burned into my retinas. And then, and then the, the thunder, a flash of light, and a crack and a bam and, and the cabin would shake and the deer hair would come down like snow. Oh, flash, bam, and the deer hair coming down and I'm laying there thinking, man, what if there's a lightning flash and old Bill Murphy is standing there looking down at me I'm going to have to get out of there. Well, the cabin door opened inward, so I had to open the door because I didn't want to get, let anything get between me and escape. So I opened the door, and the rain and the wind kind of swirled in, and I'm laying there, and the lightning, and a bam, and deer hair <laughs> falling like the snow. And I'm laying there, and, and I'm thinking, what about that bear? and breaking into the neighbor's outbuildings. If the bear comes by, man, this is a nice dry cabin, and he can smell that deer hair, why wouldn't he come in? Well, I'd have to shut the door, but I can't shut the door if old Bill Murphy shows up. I gotta get out of there. So, so, so I needed a plan. So I, I rounded up all the cans in the cabin, all the empty cans. And in the interest of full disclosure, the cans had been filled with an adult beverage at one time. <laughs> So I stacked them up in the doorway of the cabin, and I thought, if old Bill Murphy shows up, those cans won't stop me getting out. But if the bear comes around, he'll knock over the cans, I'll wake up, I'll kick the door shut, I'll be all set. And that's the way I spent the night. 
Now, the next morning I get up, and it was a nice bright day, and gosh, I, I went over to my parents' place, had breakfast, and I told them about, about the ghost of old Bill Murphy, and of course they had a good chuckle at that. And I said, yeah, but I said, I blame you. And they said, what? Why? I said, well, look, your son is 30 years old. He's still afraid of ghosts. I think that was a result of the way I was raised. Now, my dad passed away a few years ago and followed my mother. And I was back at the cabin, oh gosh, and, and standing there, and, and, it, and it's a lot different now. The interior of the cabin is paneled with cedar, and there are bunk beds for the kids along one wall, and, and a wood stove over in the other corner. And, and the trim around the door, there are lines and names and dates. When we visited with the kids, we'd stand them up against the door, and we'd draw a little pencil mark at the top of their head and we kept track of that over the years. And I realized that there's a lot of different ways that we measure growing up. One of them is lines on the door, see how high you are. Another way is dates on a calendar. And then I thought, you know, there is another way, and that is how quickly we can outgrow our fear of things that aren't real. But then I realized that I still have that ability to imagine things that aren't there. And that was a result of my upbringing. And I wish I'd had the time to thank my parents for that. Thank you. You're listening to Mudrooms, recorded live on March 14th, 2012. The theme for the evening was Cabin Fever. Next up, we have Pat McClear. Pat is a New Englander. She has been a librarian for the school district for the past 20 years. And she wrote in parentheses, yikes. <laughs> when asked for a bio to introduce herself, Pat gave us a couple of quotes. She writes, parent of elementary school student. My son was talking about you last night at the supper table. He said that Miss McClear was okay, but she doesn't take no crap from nobody. Pat thinks this might be a good quote for her headstone. <laughs> Parent of a JDHS student. My son heard you say F asterisk 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 in the library. <laughs> this, Pat wrote, is when she began to wonder if there was an opening at the public library. <laughs> Then the JDHS parent continued, I'm so glad that someone human works here. <laughs> Wrote Pat, quote, great sigh of relief. Maybe there is a God. <laughs> a quote from Pat to a friend who was a parent of a kindergarten. Your son said F-U, um, asterisk, asterisk, in the library today. Um, so that was what Pat, Pat, Pat said to the parent. And then the parent said to Pat, oh, did he learn that from you? <laughs> okay, this is Pat's niece who was a student at the school where Pat was a librarian once gave her a, quote, cuss jar with a gift tag addressed to the, quote, cussing librarian. <laughs> Pat says she will try to not cuss in her story. She also wrote that she collects nun dolls. Pat McClear. <laughs> Buy me some 
peanuts and cracker jack. I don't care if I ever get back. So it is the end of November, I'm sorry, the end of October. World Series is over. And it's time to take off the canvas cap and go with the wool. Because the monsoon season has descended on Southeast Alaska and the days are getting increasingly more dark. October rolls into November, November rolls into December. The rain goes to snain, goes to snow, and the taku winds begin to blow. And then it's time to go with flaps down. <laughs> and aren't I glad there's no mirror by the door that I go in and out of every day. December's not bad. You got the winter holidays, food, family, fun, eggnog. But it's January when the walls start to close in on you and you're trying to think how you're going to use up your time. Well, certainly you could play cards. You could sew. You might do a little reading. <coughs> or you watch movies. Angels in the outfield, but only the original. <laughs> the Rookie, Field of Dreams, Bull Durham, if only to watch Susan Sarandon. <laughs> and then it's February, and you get to put in Fever Pitch, Boston Red Sox, 2004 World Series champions. <laughs> then it's Truck Day. What? Truck Day? You know when that big-ass 18-wheeler goes down Yawkey Way, parks outside of Fenway? They load it up with the gear, then head down I-95 South to Florida. Two weeks later, pitches and catches report. And now, it, you can go back to the wool because it's spring training. And all that wheeling and dealing that happened over the hot stove in December, well, there it is. You got the rookies, you got the veterans, you got a new manager. And now, I can pick up the canvas cap again because it's opening day and the umpire yells, play ball. I come by this naturally. <laughs> I come by this genetically. 100 years ago, Fenway Park opened. 100 years ago, my father, Charlie McClear, was born. I have some great pictures. He was a tall, lanky, bony-ass kid who knew how to throw a baseball. Pawtucket Times, 1926. McClear had control with either hand and could hit a bird on the back of the air with a pebble. <laughs> Charlie told the story that he was playing one day, oh, and he saw my mother sitting in the stands, and he knew that she was the girl he was going to marry. And his prophecy came true. They were married for damn near 60 years, had six kids, 18 years between the firstborn and the baby. And they shared a passion, not only for baseball, but for sports. My parents were athletically multilingual. I, my father played baseball, basketball, hockey, football, and my mother was knowledgeable and opinionated in all of the above and more. Story goes that one day they were going up the ramp in Fenway and Babe Ruth was coming down. Did you talk to him? Did you shake his hand? Did you get his autograph? 
You tip your cap, you give the man his space. <laughs> Six kids, grandchildren, the only picture in my father's wallet, Babe Ruth, truth, 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 truth. Summer's in New England. It is hot, it is hazy, it is humid. And the only thing that man wanted to do when he came home at night was sit underneath that broad leaf maple with a tall neck bottle of Narragansett beer, listening to Ned Martin call that game live from Fenway Park. Who's up to bat? Who's on deck? The play just went six to four to three. Yaskremski makes a great catch out in left field. And in the evenings, the windows are wide open. And you can hear Ned Martin's voice coming over the radio from every room in the house. There's no air conditioning. His voice is your lullaby as you fall asleep. And in your mind's eye, you can see the green monster and that red sit-go sign. And you can imagine that ball sailing right between the two. And in the mornings, you wake up and you say, did we win? When my father was in his 80s, he was sitting underneath that same maple tree. And he was in a funk. And who's to blame him? He had buried my mother the winter before. And seven years before that, he and my mother buried my sister Paula of, wait for it, Lou Gehrig's disease. Truth. Charlie wasn't into conversation. So I went into the house and I got this book. And I came back out, I sat beside him, and I opened it up and I started talking to myself. I didn't know Dizzy Dean had a brother. Brother? Yeah, he had two. His brother Paul played with him in St. Louis. They both pitched in the World Series. Okay, I got an answer. So I kept asking questions and he would elaborate and he told me stories. He told me stories of the old timers, the famous and the not so famous, the boys he played ball with. My father was a good ball player, but Charlie was an even better storyteller. And that's what gets you through those long, dark, wet, cold winters when it's necessary to go with the flaps down. It's the stories. It's the memories. It's the anticipation of opening day. Go socks. For it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. really fun. Thanks, Pat. Our next speaker is Eric Bora, Boris. <clears throat> Eric was born and raised in Soldatna, Alaska. He spent his childhood running wild in the woods around his house, where you can still find child-sized child spears hidden in trees. <laughs> he spent his 20s traveling with as little responsibility as he could manage accruing. He moved to Juneau five years ago for an off-the-grid 
for an off-the-grid hovel at the end of North Douglas to write novels. Then he was hired as the executive director of Trailmix, which is full of responsibilities, and he now lives in a studio apartment downtown, complete with 58 outlets. <laughs> Eric. <laughs> Hello. So, 10 years ago, I spent a summer in Hope, Alaska. I don't know if you've ever been to Hope, but it's, uh, it's known oh, for yeah. its quaintness. <laughs> and their, their personal uh, claim to fame is that they have a larger population than Sunrise just down the road, which at one time was the, uh, the largest city in Alaska back in the gold rush for like a year. But they're bigger now. So, I was working for the Forest Service, and they'd sent me to a 10-day uh, cabin restoration class which being the, the local expert on restoring cabins. Um, there was a 100-year-old barn down in Hope that needed to be put back together. So I drive down to Hope, and I get out of my truck. There's a pile of logs there. It's not a cabin. It's a pile of rotten logs. <laughs> and standing next to that pile of logs was a 72-year-old man. <laughs> that was my local help. <laughs> At which point I thought, hmm, the federal government had its best once again. <laughs> But it turned out that old man was Billy Miller. Billy Miller moved to Alaska in the 50s. Um, he, after he got out of the army, he worked as a trapper. He worked as a, a hunting guide. He was a game warden for a while until he became a state. And he had to put on a uniform, and Billy wasn't having any of that, so he quit. <laughs> he lived in Girdwood for a while until the earthquake flooded his land. And then he moved to Hope, and he'd been there ever since. And he drove around town and whatever of his three trucks was working the best at the time. <laughs> He'd go to uh, town, which was Anchorage, about once a year, twice a year. His wife would drive, because I don't think Billy had a license. And it was, it was not long before I realized that my 10-day cabin class could not compare with building 10 cabins in your life, which Billy had. And soon the roles were reversed, and I was learning everything I possibly could from him. And that man, at 50 years my senior, could outwork me any day of the week. He could haul more than I could. He could carry more than I could. He'd spend his entire life outside working. And um, it was humbling. But he never made me feel bad about it. He never belittled me. If I got winded he'd, and put down the ax, he'd pick it back up. And he'd start working. Because to Billy, if there's a job need to be done, he'd do it. And there were things that, I, that blew my mind. There was a, it was a rainstorm. And the, we'd put the roof on the cabin. And there, we need to put a top strip on it. This is two stories, corrugated steel. He goes up there in leather-soled shoes. I wasn't going to go up there. I waited below him. Maybe I'll catch him, whatever. <laughs> but to Billy, it was a job that needed to be done. So he did it. That's how he was. He never thought about it. He never really considered the actions. He just was like, this, this needs to be done. So he did it. And as we got to know each other better, he trusted me more, and he told me more stories. And I was sitting around his house one day, because every Friday he cooked me pancakes. And, I'd, you know, and he had a... Uh, cast iron stove that was wood fed next to his wife's electric stove, because that's how Billy always cooked. <laughs> and we're cook he's cooking pancakes, and the TV's on, it's Good Morning America, and there's just a crowd scene flashing by, people cheering, and, and there's these three young Asian women on there, and he looks over and he says, are those Asians? And I said, yeah. And he said, oh, most beautiful one I ever saw was an Asian. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, uh, yeah, she's like, 17, wearing all white. I said, really? Yeah. Just trying to get through a uh, checkpoint. She was a North Korean trying to go south. Oh. And my lieutenant, Sar, 
And he took her out of line. He started headed toward a shack. And I followed him. And I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm going to get me some nookie. And Billy said, that ain't right. We're here to help these people. Not do that. I didn't have said, well, I'm the boss. Potter. I'm the boss. Billy picked up his rifle, pointed to the attendant, and said, well, I'm the boss now. <laughs> Lieutenant turned four shades of white. He walked away, and Billy never saw him the rest of the war. And he took that girl, and he took her to the checkpoint, and he got her to her family. He set her on her way, because that was Billy. It was a job that needed to be done, and he did it. So by the end of that summer, we had that cabin, that pile of logs built up into a big, beautiful cabin. And it's still behind the museum in Hope, and I hope you go see it someday. Because of the job that needed to be done, so Billy did it. And I learned a lot from him that summer. And I haven't seen him in five years. And I don't know if he's alive or if he's dead. I lost his number, and he never had mine. But um, he taught me the only lesson I needed to know that summer. There's a job I need to do. You do it. Thank you. We have one more speaker tonight. I'll just take a second now to say uh, later on, the audio from tonight will be available at mudrooms.blogspot.com, right? <laughs> okay. And um, we will be having our next performance in three weeks. That's April 3rd. It's the second, no, it's a Tuesday. That's what I meant. And it's, um, theme transitions, and we have one, maybe two spots available. There is a piece of paper on your way out. You're welcome to sign up, and um, we'll try and get you in. So next up, we have Kiara Alexander. Kiara, this is good, listen. Okay, Kiara was born to a deadhead feminist and a Rasta dad on the side of the highway on the way to a Grateful Dead show in New York. <laughs> she spent the majority of her life on tour following the dead, String Cheese Incident, Bob Dylan, Van Morrison, etc. She works for the state in the Department of Education and Early Development. <coughs> She lives on Douglas Island and loves to travel, jar and harvest food, local food, harvest good local food and read. She is the loving mother of a 10-year-old boy, Freedom. Give it up for the job princess, Kiara Alexander. Okay. She made me sound really cool, <laughs> and that's really bright. But okay, so um, I got asked to do this thing, and I was really, really nervous because cabin fever isn't something that I have a lot of experience with. The only experience I could think of was when I was in, hmm, how do I explain it? Well, I was down south, and I was stuck, but you have to figure out how I got there. So I'm gonna start from the beginning, well, the end, 
or somewhere in the story and end up in my cabin fever. <laughs> so I was living in Golden, Colorado and taking trips between Boulder and Golden. And my boyfriend was at the time, not my husband now, but my boyfriend then. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, he was staying somewhere like on the hill and I knew this college professor. So we were hanging out one day and the college professor said, end the summer, you guys should check out my place in Ensenada, Mexico. Here's a key, I go there every like couple of years. So my boyfriend was stoked, he was like, dude, I'm totally going there. And I was like, well, the summer's about to end. I wanted to like travel around and like just tour down the East Coast with my dog Coltrane. So, <laughs> so I take off and I'm like, okay, you go down there, I'll meet you down there, I'll get there as fast as I can. So me and my dog, we go and we end up like tripping around. I was thinking about the jazz festival, thought that would be really cool in Chicago. Well, I ended up in Palatine at this like truck stop restaurant with this really disgruntled waitress. Like she was rude. I've never met a ruder person than her in my life. <laughs> And so I'm sitting there and she's telling me about it and telling me how much she hates her life. And like, she's like, I'm only 17 and I'm stuck here. And I was like, come with me. <laughs> and so she said, okay. And we drove to her parents' house where she was living, packed a backpack and took off. So we took off, we got to, where was it? Yeah, so we had a lot of, like tripping around going on, but the next exciting thing happened in Virginia. So we get to Virginia and then we're kind of like Virginia Beach, Norfolk area. And I run into some friends that I know from when I used to live in Tyler, Texas. So these friends gave me some stuff. And they were just like, well, you're having a hard time selling your patchwork and your jewelry, so sell this stuff and meet us in Tyler, Texas. And I'm like, okay, cool. And so I take the stuff um, and we head to Jacksonville, Florida, where I know some people that really like stuff. <laughs> so we're headed out. I turned 19 on the road in Georgia, which was awesome birthday. Love Savannah. So we get to Jacksonville, and when we're right outside of Jacksonville, like a little north, and by the way, Florida is not fun to hitchhike in. Cops do not like you. It's like Utah, but you just don't know it. <laughs> so we get right, like, right there, north of Jacksonville, and we eat at Jack in the Box. We had very little money. I was only going to get a percentage of the stuff. So we had to be really frugal. I had the chili cheese fries that are kind of like JoJo's and fatter and, like, really good. And I don't remember what Peggy had. So anyway, we get really sick. I still to this day cannot eat Jack in the Box. So we get to Jacksonville. I meet up with my friend. My other friend's stuck in his bathroom because she can't move. She's stuck there. So I have to get us a hotel room because I can't just leave a girl at my friend's house pooping. <laughs> so I get a hotel room. I like hustle as much as I can. I spend money from the percentage and I sell some patchwork, do some beaded work, and I spange, which is kind of short for spare changing. So I got her hooked up in this hotel room. She's been there for three days. I still have these guys that I have to meet in Tyler, Texas, and I've got very little time to get there or they're gonna think I ripped them off. So I'm like, okay. So I'm like, 
Peggy, I can't stay here with you. You've been on the toilet for three <laughs> days. Like, I just can't do it. So she calls her parents. Lucky her, she's rich. So her parents are like, okay, we'll give you money for a plane ticket and we'll pay for the rest of the hotel room. So I'm like, cool, nice knowing you. We had a lot of fun, bye. So I take off and I hit Tyler, Texas. I meet up with my friends. I give them all their money for their stuff and I take what I made and I leave. Cause I gotta meet my boyfriend still in Mexico who's sitting on free rent and I just wanna get there, get some sunshine although I was in the South and very sweaty. So I'm leaving Tyler, Texas, which is a weird area and I can't see you, so I'm not gonna ask if anyone's ever been. But so I get like a little ways off and I start feeling funny. And I'm like, man, those JoJo's are coming back. Like, I don't know what it is, but that was some toxic Jack in the box. So I'm like, I'm going and I'm feeling sicker and sicker and finally this little old lady and I didn't really like she had a lot of feathers in her hair and she was really old like the kind of old that you're like I don't know if you should be driving this beat up truck off like the freeway because something might happen to you I don't know and can you even pump your own gas <laughs> so she picks me up and diagnoses me with walking pneumonia Wow, okay, well that's a lot to take in when you're hitchhiking, cause like what are you gonna do with walking pneumonia? So she takes, she goes, well, come stay with me. I'm like, okay, cool, right on. My boyfriend can wait like a week and I can get better. Walking pneumonia does not get better in a week. <laughs> so she drives and we're like going towards, she lives on the res, the Navajo res. And so we were driving for quite a while and it's like north of San Francisco Hot Springs, which is actually in New Mexico, Arizona border, not anywhere near San Francisco. <laughs> so we get there and she's like, I sleep for two weeks straight. Like I'm just sitting there and she's making me tea and the tea's from some herb that I don't know what it is that's growing in her front yard. So I'm like, okay, good deal, I'm getting better. But as time goes by and time goes by, like I'm getting kind of restless. Like I'm laying in bed, I'm like, okay, I should be macraming or sewing or something to get me down to Mexico. And what is my boyfriend doing? So like she takes care of me and little by little, she gives me little odd jobs and I get to know her. And she tells me stuff about her family and her kids and how she's kind of on her own in this double wide trailer in the middle of nowhere, which I swear I could hear snakes all the time. So she has me like, fixing her stairs, doing little things, and how are you gonna say no? Like, she just totally brought me back from the brink. She's been taking care of my dog when I can't take care of him, and taking care of me. So of course, I'm down. That's really distracting. Okay, so I'm going down and like trying to do all these little things, and I'm spending like so much time with her. The next thing I know, it's 4th of July of the next year, and I'm spending it under a table because she's scared of fireworks. So we're sitting there under the table, and like that is my only experience I've ever had with cabin fever. <laughs> Mudrooms is a community-powered organization created by Amanda Compton and Alita Buss. If you
you'd like to tell your story, send us an email at juno.mudrooms at gmail.com. Audio production is by Mark Wheeler.